ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Why would an intelligent designer of the universe allow so much suffering? And is human evil most consistent with naturalism or theism? Welcome to ID the Future. I'm your host, Andrew McDermott. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Hedin, Professor Emeritus of Physics and Astronomy at Ball State University in Indiana. In 2013, his Boundaries of Science course at Ball State University came under attack by a national atheist organization for allowing student discussions in class to consider evidence that nature is not all there is and that our lives might have eternal meaning and value within a universe specifically fitted for beings like us. Dr. Hedin is author of the recent book, Cancelled Science, What Some Atheists Don't Want You to See. He speaks regularly at universities around the country and writes on the evidence for intelligent design at evolutionnews.org. Dr. Hedin, welcome to Idea of the Future. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to be here with you today. You've written a couple of articles at evolutionnews.org recently that are very insightful, I thought, and timely in light of current events going on in the world right now. And though this topic is evergreen, because there are many examples of human evil throughout all of recorded history, we're all wrestling right now with the effects of the worst attack on the people of Israel since the Holocaust. Your first article is titled, Thoughts of Evil in a Designed World. And the follow-up to that is, Nature Reflects an Intelligent Design, but Also a Moral One. In this episode, we'll unpack your first article about the two causes of suffering and what that suffering means in a design world versus a world that occurred through natural mechanisms. And in a second episode, we'll discuss your argument that nature reflects not only intelligent design, but also moral design. Now, you start out your post on suffering by saying this, Not least at a time like this in the world, perhaps the most widely voiced objection against intelligent design is... Why would a designer, or God, allow so much suffering? You go on to say that causes of suffering appear to stem from two different sources, natural evil and human evil. Can you define natural evil for us? Well, it's a good place to start, perhaps a little less personal than some of the other causes or forms of evil. But, for example, we describe natural disasters, uh, such as what happens when a hurricane makes landfall in a populated area, or a tornado goes through a mobile home park, or or even a, a landslide, or a wildfire, or something like that. And uh, people, their property get hurt. And so at that kind of intersection between what nature is doing and how it affects humans, we interpret what nature is doing as evil. Now, if it was just something that happened in a place on planet Earth and it didn't affect anybody, we would probably just not really consider it as evil. So people have said that the laws of nature, the forces of nature are impersonal, and in a way I agree with that. But I think the question comes up in the context of why would God allow evil? We would ascribe the origin of natural forces to God. So when they potentially cause harm to people, we ultimately perhaps trace it back to God and maybe want to lay the blame at his doorstep. Okay. So as humans, we tend to blame something, and it's good to know what we're blaming and why, basically, is what you're saying. Well, 
Yes, I think that it just, there's a tendency within us, especially in times of pain, to try to look for a cause, a reason, uh, you know, who's responsible. And, um, you know, looking at, at natural disasters, though, I did just a little bit of uh, research on this when I was writing the article. Uh, it turns out that actually the percentage of all human deaths that are attributable to natural disasters has been decreasing uh, over the last century quite significantly. In the last 10 years, maybe only 0.1% of human deaths are due to natural disasters. And uh, the article I was reading made the point clear that this is not due to fewer or less intense natural disasters over the last century, but simply that society as a whole in different countries is getting better at protecting people, getting better at providing assistance and follow-up and so on to help mitigate the negative effects of those disasters. Right, yeah. And you also observe that the populations most affected by natural disasters are not evenly distributed. There's a disparity there. What would the disparity show? What would that suggest or hint at? So the disparity in the, I guess, uh, demographic of the population that is most affected, it shows up that those who are economically challenged, poor populations, tend to suffer more loss. And this can come about from various uh, factors. You know, if if say, the building structures that are inhabited by poor people or perhaps in nations where there is not as much economic development, if the building structures are not as uh, robust or able to tolerate, uh, say, earthquakes, then there may be a greater loss of human life when an earthquake uh, hits that area. As compared to, say, uh, a more modern, economically prosperous country where there's the resources available to build structures with earthquake protection built in, or maybe even to choose a location that is not so prone to effects of natural disasters. And and so in in some degree, you know, already we're beginning to see that the suffering caused by what we could call natural forces has something to do with our choices as well. You know, if we're willing to spend the money to do things right or to uh, take precautions to protect ourselves with better building materials, better building designs, or even where we build things, then there will be perhaps fewer deaths as a result. Now, your uh, educational background is physics and astronomy. Let's pretend we have the ability to adjust the laws of nature and tweak specifically, say, the law of gravity just a little bit, just so that less people fall on the ground and scrape their knees or worse. Uh, maybe it will stop landslides. What's the problem with this? Could we get away with that? Well, probably not. <laughs> and the reason is that many of the, I guess, strengths of the different uh, forces of nature are known to be very finely tuned. For example, the force of gravity affects not just us locally in how much it hurts when we fall off our bike, but um, it is a universal force that is the main shaper of the entire universe. The 
structure of galaxies, the formation of stars and planets is all governed by the force of gravity. And uh, even from the beginning of the universe with the Big Bang, the rate of expansion of matter as a result of the Big Bang is affected by the force of gravity. And scientists have determined that if it was changed by just a small amount, either the rate of expansion would be too great and matter would spread out too quickly. And then, I mean, this this would happen if gravity was not as strong as it is now. The expansion rate would kind of be greater, matter would spread out too much, and stars would not be able to clump together by gravity. We wouldn't even have planets and stars. And if gravity was greater, then the expansion rate would be slower and gravitational attraction would be more effective. And basically, you would end up with a mess of black holes. That's not conducive to life either. So many other of the laws of nature also are uh, finely tuned and uh, just trying to change them to suit our needs or to imagine that we're going to fix a problem locally tends to have consequences that can be universal and are almost always disadvantageous to life. Right. So not advisable that we take matters into our own hands there. Well, what about sickness? Uh, That's also considered a natural evil. Are bodily afflictions more reasonably reconciled with the notion of a purely naturalistic universe or one from an intelligent designer? Well, I mean, this is, again, a a deep question. I don't know that we can settle it entirely. But, you know, sickness, when it hits home or when it happens to us, uh, feels more more personal even. You know, it's afflicting us, even though, you know, there might be somebody uh, in our same family who's not suffering. And so, it can seem in a way unfair. You know, again, if you think about complaining, say, you know, that if there's a God, he wouldn't allow sickness and so on. And so there must not be a God because there's sickness. That argument really doesn't hold water. I mean, ultimately, we have to start with more basic fundamentals and explain how we got to be a living being in the first place. And looking at the biochemical complexity of the human body within each cell, but then many of the physiological systems of our bodies show layers upon layers of essentially engineering and fine-tuning design that allow us to live at all. And so I think that we need to take a step back and and be impressed that we're alive at all. And and it's a very complex system, our our bodies. And, you know, any complex system can break down because we do live in a, a world where the second law of thermodynamics applies to not just stars and mountainsides and physical systems, but also to our own bodies, which are made up of physical elements as well. So, you know, when our our car ages a bit, it gets gets rusty and things don't work as well. Honestly, some of that could be true of our, our bodies as well. So I don't think that sickness is inconsistent with design, just like you know, if if your car's headlight goes out, that's not inconsistent with the fact that the car was designed. Now, you know, you could also say that, say, cancer is is a mutation of the way things were designed to be. And, you know, evolution sort of predicts that mutations will happen. And, well, so 
to look at cancer and blame God. In a way, we could look at cancer and say it's part of a, a natural process of mutation and things are breaking down. So it's, again, not a complaint against design, I think. And, you know, it is unfortunate. I'm not trying to explain away the suffering that comes with sickness. And I, I know, you know personally and in my own family, you know, there's, there's examples of, of sickness and it's not easy. And anyone who's dealt with it knows, knows that to be true. But I don't find that there is a cause within the suffering of sickness to uh, suggest that either God doesn't exist or that, that he doesn't care. Well, what about human evil? You write that human evil stems from choices that humans are free to make. But if we are all just the result of natural forces, primarily the electromagnetic attraction between charged particles, then how can evil or good have any meaning outside of our opinions? What, what would you say to that? Well, I don't believe that it's a rationally defensible position to suggest that our, our choices are purely, are purely predetermined by, say, the interaction between atoms in our bodies or our minds or within our brains. And so, you know, human evil, if we are purely a naturalistic outcome, then everything about us is based on the results of the laws of nature. There is nothing else in the naturalistic worldview. There's only forces between particles. And as a physicist, you know, there's only a few of those. There's gravitational force, which is irrelevant for chemistry. There's then the electromagnetic force, which is the dominant uh, natural force for any sort of biochemistry. And, you know, then there's a nuclear force, but that just sort of establishes the particular elements that make up our, our bodies. So that's it. And if we are nothing more than interactions, and if those interactions are, in a sense, left on their own, without any, you know, I'm almost begging the question here, without any intelligent manipulation, then there can't be any such thing as evil. Because how can a, a rock be evil? Or, or how can gravity be evil versus good? I mean, it, it is even a meaningless concept to discuss morality. And in essence, it would be difficult even to defend rational thought. You know, how can we even have a meaningful discussion if all of our thoughts are simply the results of interactions between electrons and there's nothing nothing more going on than that so in a way i would say that human evil based on our choices as well as human good if we could branch into that but that that is consistent not with naturalism or materialism but it's consistent with theism that our our beings have more to them than just the interactions between the matter that makes us up, that we have a, a spiritual component, something that is transcendent to the physical, and that that allows us to have rational thought, it allows us to have a moral basis, to make judgments, to discern good and evil. Uh, these aren't just illusions. So again, I think that 
when considering human evil, the very concept is inconsistent with naturalism. And so actually, in a way, provides a, a, a pillar of um, kind of argument in favor of theism. Yeah. Well, and people are still making the claim of determinism in science. Just today, I saw a news report about Stanford University neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky, and he concluding after 40 years of study that, quote, virtually all human behavior is as far beyond our conscious control as the convulsions of a seizure, the division of cells, or the beating of our hearts, end quote. So in other words, Sapolsky's claiming we don't have free will. And he's not the only one out there that's suggesting this. Now, that conclusion seems to fit with an evolutionary account of human origins, but is it aligned with the evidence that we're seeing? Well, I think that, broadly speaking, um, his viewpoint is not very popular. I read his article, and I think that he is forgetting something. He makes a point of saying that our choices are merely determined by influences, not just environmental influences around us, but uh, internal influences, you know, physiological, even mental. But that that's not to deny that we are influenced in our choices by a number of things. You know, if I'm getting hungry, I may choose to do something, and that's just a, a result of a, a physiological uh, stimulus. Or, you know, if I'm cold because the window's open and it's uh, winter outside, that may influence me in a different choice. Certainly, we are influenced, but what Sapolsky seems to have suppressed is the reality that we as human beings also have rational control over our our bodies, our minds, our, our reactions. So, we're not just vulnerable or defenseless kind of uh, collections of molecules that are completely at the whim of influences. We have rational control that we can actually will to do something which is contrary to every influence that is affecting us at the moment. You know, for for example, I have on occasion suffered from severe migraines, and this has happened when I'm supposed to be doing something else, like going to class to give a lecture on astronomy. <laughs> and every every physical stimulus in my being is telling me to lie down, to close my eyes, to not move, and yet Rationally, I know I am responsible to teach this class. I don't have a backup. I need to be there. And so I force myself against every input physiologically that's pounding on my senses. And I get myself into the classroom and hold on to the desk and manage to give a lecture. Okay, so that's a rational override. We have that. And you know, there's many other examples you could think of where the physical input is pushing us one way, but we override that with our rational thoughts. And that keeps us, in a way, morally responsible for what we do. For example, you know, if uh, 
terrorists des- decide that they're going to go in and attack another country, you could say, well, that's based on a lot of uh, environmental and, you know, kind of background influences upon them. There may be that, but they also have the rational ability to override those influences if they so chose to do. Because we can determine what we do, or we can decide not to do, uh, we still have moral responsibility. And I think that that's kind of the bedrock of our justice system. It actually is a uh, important consideration, because if if we are adopting the position that we are not morally responsible, then that also implies that we are not rational, and it therefore implies that we're not human, and so we therefore cease to have any rights. And that's a scary, would be a very unfortunate world to kind of tip into if this uh, viewpoint that we have no free choice is accepted. And I think that it would it would not only be wrong to accept it, it would be against evidence. Yeah, well, that, those are some good points. Now, sometimes when we see evil acts being committed, we'll say, oh, look at those animals, you know, <laughs> and describe people as animals. But in your article, you write, nowhere in the animal world do we see evil that comes anywhere close to comparing with the unfortunate depths of evil displayed by humanity throughout our recorded history. So is that difference between human evil and animal behavior surprising? Well, I think it depends upon which worldview one is um, approaching the question with. If we, for example, consider first a, a naturalistic evolutionary worldview, where humans are just kind of a little bit of a evolutionary step away from animals. And in fact, that means that we're still animals, but we're just somehow more successful in the evolutionary paradigm. Then we wouldn't expect a categorical difference between our behavior and and animal behavior. You know, if you think about the animal world, sure, one animal might kill another animal. There's usually reasons for that, fighting over food or or a mate or territory, but you just don't see anything like a, a war going on in the animal world where one group of animals decides to expand their kingdom and, and destroy all the other animals or subjugate them <laughs> in some way. And, you know, even on a, on a simpler level, I remember... Um, some years ago, we lived in a neighborhood where uh, there were some feral cats. And uh, there was a, a mother cat that had, I think, three kittens uh, or more, but uh, three of them grew up and, and hung around our, our house. And we eventually began to give them some food outside the back door. And the mother cat was the dominant one. You know, she was a survivor. You know, she was, you know, a feral cat. And, and so she would push her, even her offspring out of the way from the food bowl and eat the food herself first. And, you know, we could think, oh, that was, that was mean. But, you know, it was, it was a survival technique. But what I noted was that she did not try to like hoard all the food. I mean, we had several bowls out and she didn't try to somehow make sure that nobody got any food. 
yet this sort of thing happens within human society when it goes wrong. There are, you know, are times when some people will say, I'm going to have all the food and, and no one else is going to have any, or else they're only going to get it if they pay me some exorbitant price, some uh, sort of an extortion setup. So animal evil, I think, is limited to just sort of um, opportunistic, what seems to work in the moment, but, but human evil sometimes uh, spreads, unfortunately, to such uh, at a national level. And sometimes it doesn't seem to even make sense. And so I think there's a disconnect between categorically when we look at human evil and animal evil. And so I believe that that actually fits better with, you know, more the theistic viewpoint that, you know, humans are not animals. Humans are a different class of being. We have the potential for more good. We have the potential for more evil. So those are just some thoughts on that particular uh, comparison. Yeah. Well, as we wrap this up, this first episode, in your estimation, is theism a better explanation for the origin and spread of human evil in the world? Well, I think that uh, human evil is consistent with the theistic viewpoint that is, um, at least within the Judeo-Christian worldview, where, you know, again, humans are not just animals, but have a, a consciousness and awareness uh, that we might call a spiritual side, a spiritual nature, and as such that uh, I believe, as I just mentioned, gives us the capability of expressing greater kind of altruism, benevolence, compassion on the good side, and also evil at a scale that's uh, completely absent uh, from the animal world. And of course, the the biblical viewpoint speaks about why. Why is there human evil? And uh, ultimately traces it back to a human choice. In a sense, a, a decision to serve self rather than the one who created him. So there's much more to be said about this. I don't want to paint just a, a pessimistic picture and say it's it's just all bad. Again, from the biblical viewpoint... Our designer has stepped in to provide a solution to this problem. But that's probably, uh, to talk about the details of that, something for another episode, perhaps. Yeah. Well, it is time to close this episode, but we'll follow up with a second episode where we'll discuss your accompanying piece at evolutionnews.org, Nature Reflects an Intelligent Design, but also a Moral One. Dr. Hedin, thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you for the conversation. We'll include links to these articles in this episode's description at idthefuture.com. And for more of Dr. Hedin, get a copy of his book, Cancelled Science, What Some Atheists Don't Want You to See. For ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.